We, uh, we are going to be in uh, Jonah chapter 4 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Jonah. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have one in a seat back around you, and there should be a bookmark that gets you right to Jonah. If not, I think it's page like six something or other. I think it's six or seven hundred, something like that. It's in the um, towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, and so while you're turning there, I, I just want to thank, uh, again, thank all of our moms. Thank you all um, for all of the for all of the moms and for all of the um women who step into that role of mom, that nurturing, caring, comforting, protecting, providing, empathizing, supporting role, whether or not you're actually a mom, thank you uh, for, for stepping in and, and being that and, do, and stepping into that role. Um, a little recap as we are going to finish up the book of Jonah this morning. So Jonah is a prophet who was instructed by God to go to this major metropolitan city. It is a major city, the major city of the known world at the time, Nineveh, this pagan rebellious place that was full of the enemies of God. Jonah is told, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent and turn toward the God of Israel. Jonah says, no, thank you, and bails and goes in literally the opposite direction, tries and gets on a boat to go to the east toward Tarshish. On the way, God sends a storm that almost destroys the boat. Um, Jonah is eventually thrown overboard in an effort to appease God. And it's sort of a, um, you know, it's, it's me, he's after kind of situation. So he gets the crew to throw him overboard. He's expecting to drown and die as punishment for his rebellion. Instead of letting Jonah drown and die, God sends a big fish to swallow him up. And Jonah is in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, during which time he prays to God and God tells the fish to vomit Jonah out onto the dry land. Then God speaks to Jonah again and says, let's try this one more time. Go to Nineveh, preach to Nineveh, tell them to repent. Tell them that they need to, they need to turn toward me. Jonah finally actually goes. He gets about a third of the way into the city. And he tells Nineveh, you got 40 days before God completely alters this place. The people hear God's word and they repent. Even the king is humble enough to put on sackcloth and ash and ask for repentance they he calls for the entire place he says all of this city all of the the place that i am in charge of we are going to go into a time of fasting and prayer as a community in hopes that god will relent from destroying us and it works and that's where we're going to pick up the story um here we're going to be in jonah we're going to start in the very end of chapter three and then we're going to go into chapter four when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come up, become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not, not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Chapter 4 opens up and says, Jonah is displeased exceedingly. He was angry. This word displeased, most commonly translated in the Bible, is evil, is wicked. It's connected to the word for to make something spoil when food goes bad. Jonah's heart has been spoiled and is full of anger, unrighteous anger. And his anger is not at the Ninevites. His anger is not with himself. His anger is not with the king who ordered the prayer and fasting. It's not even with the sailors from chapter 1 who throw him overboard. Jonah was exceedingly displeased and angry with God. He was angry and displeased because of the outcome, because of what we read there at the very end of chapter 3 and verse 10, that God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so out of anger, Jonah prays. Jonah at least speaks with God. I mean, that's ultimately what prayer is. There's lots of different, you read lots of different books, hear lots of different talks about what is prayer. Prayer is speaking with God. Even something like this, this prayer of sorts, it's really kind of the opposite of what we would think when we think of prayer. It's kind of the opposite of what we think of. But at least in his rage, in his anger, Jonah runs toward God as opposed to away from him. Because for all of Jonah's flaws, for all of his faults and failures, he is still a man of God. He still prays. He still knows his word. He knows God's word. And so even in his rage and anger, even though that rage and anger is directed at God, he goes to God instead of away from him. And Jonah complains, we see in verse 2. And we get some insight here in verse 2 that we didn't have before about Jonah's original refusal to the command from back in chapter 1. Here he says, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Meaning, chapter 1 goes, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah didn't just ignore God's command and run away, but instead prayed, spoke with God, had a conversation with God and said, I don't want to go. And here's why. I think it's a bad idea, God. Let me tell you why. Here's what I think you should do instead, God. Here's what makes much more sense. Here's what's more logical. Here's what's more realistic in this world. God, you don't quite understand the situation, all the nuances we're dealing with here, so let me take care of this my way. We might not pray any of those direct words, but how often... Have we prayed those kind of prayers or thought those kind of thoughts? Where God is leading, God is calling us one way into something, and we have every obvious, personal, and convenient reason why we should go a different route, do something else that makes much more sense. It is the faulty logic mankind has been wrestling with since Adam and Eve had a snake tell them, you will not surely die if you eat the fruit. We want to do things our way. And we may know intellectually 
that God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so we either ignore that reality or we see it as a hindrance that means God doesn't really know or care what it's like for us in the day-to-day grind of life. He's so disconnected that, yes, his ways and his thoughts are so much higher. He doesn't really understand the burdens and pressures of this life. So clearly I know better because it's my life. I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. Jonah says, this is why I left for Tarshish, because I know you, God. I know you're gracious. I know you're merciful. I know you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know you will relent from promised disaster if hearts are truly changed. God, I know you. See, because again, God, Jonah knows his history. He knows of all the times that the Israelites rebelled and God did not abandon them. He knows of his prophet colleagues and their words of warning and their calls to repentance and how many times a prophet walked into a city and said, God is going to destroy this place unless you repent. And then God's people repented and God withheld his judgment. More than that, Jonah knows his own life. He knows the events that have already transpired, just the things that we've read in this book alone. He has experienced firsthand the grace, mercy, patience, steadfast love, and rescue from danger, all of it in just these four chapters. He knows it all. He knows who God is. And because of that, he knew. God, I knew how this was going to go. I knew that even though they are pagan outsiders, even though they are the enemies of your people who have oppressed and abused them, I knew that if I went to that city, I knew that if I spoke your word, if I shared your message, I knew they might repent. They might hear it and have their hearts changed. And if that happened, you were going to relent of this destruction. And that reality angers Jonah. It angers him so much he says he'd rather die than to see Nineveh be changed and continue on and see God's favor and grace. Basically what Jonah says there in verse 4 is over my dead body. That's Jonah's reaction to the grace of God towards Nineveh. See it's not just about Nineveh. Jonah's anger and frustration is with God himself. In a sense, he's saying, I'd rather die than live and serve a God who would act this way towards people like that. The same man who was rescued from death by God, who prayed all the right words in the belly of the fish, who was given, in essence, a new life, has ignored it all, forgotten it all, and deemed Nineveh unworthy of the same kind of grace he himself received. God responds to Jonah's prayer with a simple question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Said another way, it's basically God saying, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry? See, we're allowed to ask questions and even encouraged to ask questions of God. We can go to him with our questions, with our, our longings, when we're confused, when we're overwhelmed, and we can ask, God, what are you doing? God, I don't see where you are. God, help me understand this. God, I need to know. We can ask him questions that's good, that's helpful, it's encouraged, but just know God will ask questions himself. And so Jonah, God asked Jonah this question, but Jonah ignores it. And just because Jonah ignores the question doesn't mean that's the end of the inquiry or the conversation. Jonah is full of displeasure and anger. And so we see in verse 5, he leaves the city. The narrator makes a not-so-subtle emphasis on how badly Jonah wanted to be outside of the walls 
of Nineveh. Three times in one sentence, three times in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of that city. Three different times it says Jonah wanted out. He got out. He wanted to be an outsider. He wanted nothing to do with that city because he sat hoping maybe God would still destroy that place. And he wanted to be safe and he wanted to see the show. He sat hoping God might move in the way he wanted God to move. And so he makes for himself a booth, basically a, a quick, rough little shelter of branches and leaves to shade him from the desert sun. It wasn't enough, though, as he finds himself in discomfort because he's in the middle of the desert. And there in verse 6, and from 6 on to the rest of the chapter, we are really reminded of a few things by God. Things that, especially for those of us who, who call CF home, things that we talk about regularly and repeatedly but are always good to reaffirm. One, God is in control of all things at all times. If we take all of Jonah into account, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God hurled a great wind upon the sea. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Here in verse 6 of chapter 4, Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. In verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. In verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. The God of the sea is the God of the earth, is the God of the wind, and the maker and sustainer of all existence. He can and will use everything and anything necessary to teach, correct, rebuke, train, and generally get your attention. Whether it is a great, great fish or a small, small worm, God is in control of all. And number two, he is intimately involved in all of creation. And he isn't just in control of it all, he is invested and actively working out in it. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, The life of Jonah cannot be written without God. Take God out of the prophet's history and there is no history to write. This is equally true of each one of us. Apart from God, there is no life, nor thought, nor act, nor career of any man, however lowly or however high. Leave out God and you cannot write the story of anyone's career. If you attempt it, it will be so ill-written that it shall be clearly perceived you have tried to make bricks without straw and that you sought to fashion a potter's vessel without clay. You cannot avoid God's presence and activity in this world because he is intimately involved in all of it. Jonah makes himself this shelter sitting on a hill that isn't quite adequate and so god creates a plant that shoots up and covers jonah giving him shade and comfort there were trees in that area that were known that had these big big leaves that would be able to make uh, be able to cover him and so in verse six it says jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant again chapter or verse one opens that he was exceedingly displeased and angry because of the grace and mercy of God shown toward this city and his decision to spare them instead of annihilating them. But Jonah is, in contrast, exceedingly glad because a plant gave him some shade. A plant that clearly wasn't made to give him shade. It wasn't there when he built the shelter. God made it grow and cover Jonah. God did something intentional. God acted. He saw his prophet was in discomfort, and he did something to cover him. And again, Jonah is tasting the grace of God and refuses to be confronted by his own hypocrisy. 
But this is only part of a much bigger conversation God is having with Jonah, this teachable moment. Because in verse 7, God uses a little worm to do what worms do, eat a plant. And in doing so, the plant loses its life source and withers away, exposing Jonah once again to the elements. Not only exposing him to the sun, but the scorching wind that God sent. You ever experienced one of those, we're coming up on it, summer is coming, I promise. Those thick, hot days, you know, like you open up the window and there's no real wind, or if it is, like it's just hot and warm. you're like stuck in an oven, like even the breeze is thick. That's what Jonah is stuck in. Between that and the sun, Jonah is getting a little heated. A physical manifestation rather than the emotional heat he was feeling toward God at the beginning of the chapter. Now he's feeling it. He is growing faint. He is a little bit sunburnt. And once again in verse 8, Jonah asks to die. It is better for me to die than to live. Why? Because he was so hot. And I get it, man. I, it, it, being hot is uncomfortable at times, right? Overwhelming. I, I, I think I'd rather be cold than hot. Right, because cold, you can always put on more layers. You could be naked and still just sweating and uncomfortable. So I get it, Jonah. You're hot. But really, Jonah, you'd rather die? Both times he's expressed this, this overwhelming feeling of not wanting to live anymore have come in conjunction to his own personal emotional state, what he wants, what he desires, how he feels. And so once again, God replies, to the request from Jonah with a question. The first time it was about Nineveh, right? I'd rather die than see Nineveh continue. But now it's about a plant, which seems pretty ridiculous. But for some reason, it's the question about the plant that Jonah answers. Jonah is exceedingly displeased and angry about this events of Nineveh. God says, do you have a right to be angry? Jonah blows off that question. Jonah is exceedingly angry that this plant that was there for a day and is gone is now gone. He's exceedingly angry to the point of death. God says, do you have a right to be angry about this plant? And Jonah says, yeah, I do. Do you do well to be angry for the plant, God says in verse 9. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. How unfair this is, God. How frustrating. How annoying. How overwhelming that a thing like this could happen to me. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Those are the final recorded words of the prophet Jonah. Thankfully, that's not the end of the book. Once again, though, God doesn't scold him or belittle him. He uses this interaction as a teachable moment. God speaks to Jonah in verse 10. Jonah, you're up this upset about a plant. Why? You didn't labor over it. You didn't put it in the ground. You didn't water it and nourish it to grow. You've barely any connection to it. It came up in the night and it perished the next night. It existed for a day, Jonah. It gave you a bit of shade for a few hours. And when it went away, you're this upset. And here's God reminding us he's the master teacher. Because he takes this object lesson in verse, and then goes into verse 11. Jonah, you're this upset about a plant. Shouldn't I care so much more? For the great city of Nineveh, 
120,000 people and all of their livestock. I think this is the book that gets cattle, gets mentioned more than anybody else. Something about the cattle in this story. God says, look, yes, Jonah, these people are pagan. They don't know the beauty of being in a relationship with me. They are so turned around by sin, they don't know their left from their right. Jonah, I made them. I created them in my image and likeness. I know them. I have been intimately involved in their lives. And regardless of their wickedness, regardless of their evil, it is my desire that they know me. So Jonah, I sent you. What was our verse this morning? Right? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. God is saying, Jonah, for as much as you are upset about this plant, for as much as you cared about this silly plant that was there for barely a day, I care so much deeper for these people, even these people who are rebellious enemies against me. And that's the end of the book. God reminding his prophet, reminding us, the readers, that his heart, his compassion is for the lost. Even though the events of this book occur hundreds of years before Jesus would show up, it is a reminder that the plan always has been for a day to come where all people would be welcome into a right relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because God wants all people to repent, to be reconciled to him, to know him as Father and Savior and Lord. That has always been the plan. One of the co-founders of uh, the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, he said the book of Jonah acts for us like a mirror. We look at this story, we look at this prophet and all his flaws and failures, and it actually forces us to look at ourselves. So often we read the Bible and I think it's human instinct to try and put ourselves into the story and identify with someone in the story, and usually by Again, by human instinct, we try and make ourselves the heroes of the story, right? We want to be David, slaying that Goliath. We want to be Joshua, courageous, leading into battle. We want to be Paul, planting churches and no fear in the face of persecution. But in actuality, every time we do that, what we're doing is putting ourselves in the hero position, which is God's position. But we have people like this, like Jonah, where this is a point where we can look at Jonah and say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. When we're in distress, when we're in rebellion, when we, we've sinned and we pray, what do we pray for? We pray, God, I need your grace. God, grant me your mercy. God, grant me your forgiveness, your kindness. God, I've sinned. I've screwed up. I'm sorry. Please be gracious to me. But what about when we pray regarding those people who have hurt us? The people who have wronged us? The ones who are carrying out obvious evil around the city, around the world? The ones who are actively pursuing sin? What do we pray for for them? That God's justice would be poured out. That God would have his vengeance. Isn't it interesting? We never pray, God, I have sinned, I have screwed up. May your justice rain down on me. Why? Because we knew if that happened, we would be ruined. 
when it comes to us, when it comes to the ones that we love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. But them, they, him, her, they deserve God's God's judgment and justice. How is that any different than Jonah's feelings toward Nineveh? We pick and we choose when and who we decide gets to experience the grace and mercy of God. Usually it's dependent upon the level of sin and where it sits in our own preconceived tier ranking of rebellion. We create this list in our minds of acceptable and unacceptable sins. And it just so happens that whatever I struggle with, whatever sin I'm committing, always lands in the acceptable sin category. But for other people, how dare they? How dare they sin in that way? How dare they hold those thoughts? How dare they speak that way, act that way, dress that way, raise their kids that way, vote that way, get into those addictions, sleep with that person? How dare they? They don't deserve anything but judgment and consequences. They certainly don't deserve God's grace. We create this list of who's most deserving, who's most deserving of God's grace. And that is the biggest load of hypocritical, self-righteous garbage possible. To think they aren't deserving of God's grace. Of course they aren't. That's the point of grace, and neither are you. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You didn't earn it, win it, or work your way into God's favor. And yet somehow, for some reason, we get it into our heads that we're the deciders of who's in and who's out. Brothers and sisters, we are not the gatekeepers of grace. And when we act like that, when we begin to think that way, either as individuals or collectively as the church, it is a clear and definite sign that we have either never actually known or have completely abandoned the soothing balm of grace over the wounds of our sin. Have you known, not intellectually, not theoretically, but actually experientially known the amazing grace that John Newton wrote about? Have you known what it was like to be trapped and stuck, lost and helpless and hopeless, only to be rescued, revived, renewed, and redeemed, not because of who you are, not because of what you have done or what you have the potential to do, but solely based on the unearned merit and favor of God toward you? That is grace. Have you experienced the working out of the gospel, the good news of the grace of God offered to all people through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced that new mind, new heart, new desires, new life available here and now by grace through faith in Jesus? Have you received the grace of God, actually felt it, actually tasted it, touched it, known it to be good, the favor of God, the embrace of God, the peace of God available through faith in Jesus? Because sadly, there are those who claim to be Christian, those who play Christian, but are doing so without ever truly knowing the sweetness of grace, the peace of mercy, and that joy-filled rest that comes from forgiveness. And there are also so many Too many who have not heard, who have not seen, who have not believed, who do not know the grace being offered to them. And mostly it's because we Christians put them in the them category. And we withhold from them the greatest truth you could possibly know. 
And what God has been saying, what God has been declaring, preaching, proclaiming, and teaching since the day he walked in the garden after sin entered the world is that in his heart, he wants all to come to know him, to be saved, to be embraced, and welcomed into the family of God. He says to Jonah, he has compassion for Nineveh, that great city with 120,000 souls in it. Just as he has great compassion for our city of Chicago with its 2.697 million souls in it. He loves this place. He loves these people. Christians, how can we possibly call ourselves the people of God, the children of God, if we won't have the same compassion, the same heart, the same longing our Father has for our neighbors, our co-workers, our families, our strangers to have a relationship with him? If we are truly a people, if we are truly as individuals, people who have been saved by grace through faith, this amazing grace, this sweet sound that saved wretches like us, we have to be willing to set aside our proclivity toward being Pharisees, toward judging and deciding who is good enough, smart enough, open enough, savable enough. Instead, we need to have a heart like our father's. Like our spiritual older brother, Jesus, who saw the sinners, saw the outcasts, saw the helpless and hopeless, and embraced and cared and loved and showed grace and hospitality and mercy to them. Because those outsiders, those hopeless, those helpless, those who it is easy to write off and ignore and give up on, without the grace of God, there I am and there you are. Pastor Alistair Begg said, ultimately, divine grace Toward sinners cannot be understood. It does not have a reason. It simply reflects the way God is. Sometimes grace doesn't make sense. Most of the time, grace doesn't make sense. Oh, that we would be a people who reflect the way that God is to this world. Being a people becoming Christ-like in the way we show grace in our actions and proclaiming Christ in our words. This is the great need of our city, our country, and our world today. That God's people would remember that once we weren't a people, but now we are. That once we were without mercy, but now have experienced mercy. That once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now have been raised to life by God. Once we were lost and now are found. Once we were blind and now we see. Why? Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of, our, of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before there was anything, before he said, let there be light, God showed grace and had grace ready, directed toward us. And because of that, for the believer, for the Christian, for the true child of God who has been engulfed in this grace, Paul says in Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You can live into the new life, the kingdom life, the child of God life now, here, not because you're super great and awesome but because of grace. John tells us in John 1, for them... Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There's no shortage of grace. No finite amount. He doesn't need to ration it out or give it in limited distribution. It is grace upon grace upon grace. He's not going to run out of it. 
Brothers and sisters, remember it, embrace it, don't forget it or minimize or ignore it, and let the reality of the grace of God shown to you when you were undeserving, when you were still actively sinning against him, God made a way, God gave you a chance through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to have a new and right relationship with him. Let that reality spark in you a response to see this world reconciled by grace through faith. Be ready and willing to share that grace you have received with others. You have everything in Christ. Our God is generous. So be generous. You have everything in Christ by grace. So share it with the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you and God, we praise you for who you are, for the ways in which you reveal yourself to us. God, we thank you for the hope and the mercy and the grace. It comes in all forms and fashions and flavors. It's the sun shining. It's beautiful flowers. It's sweet music. That's grace. We didn't deserve or any deserve or earn any of that. That's you giving that to the world. It's also forgiveness. It's it's mercy. It's coming to you time and time again with the same sin, with the same excuses, with the same thing, and you forgiving and you not scolding and you not belittling and you not giving up on us. God, as Christians, we claim to be a people marked by grace. Help us to be a people who show grace. who seek out opportunities to love and care and treat this world as it doesn't deserve, to treat those in our lives, in our interactions, the way you would. God, I'm reminded there's that song and there's a line that says, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Oh God, give us your eyes so that we could see this world and, and have compassion on this world the way you do. That we might be able to offer to this broken, noisy, exhausted world a little bit of rest, a little bit of quiet, and a, and a great amount of life and hope. God, remind us that we didn't do anything to earn your favor. We can't. We didn't do anything. We can't do anything to lose your favor. It is your giving, your gift, your grace. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to remember that and help us to be a people who reflect that to this world. God, we thank you for today. 
thank you for your word. And Lord, if you, in your will, give us tomorrow, I pray that as we go into the world, we are people who remember that we have been covered in grace, that we might show it to this world, that we might be the lights of the world that you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.